Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Church, I have a question for you this morning. And it's a historic question in one of the historic catechisms. It says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer in the catechism is... To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Church, if you believe that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, would you say amen? Amen. All right, about 35 of you want to give God glory this morning. Church, if you believe that man's true chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, would you say amen? amen? Today's passage is going to press in upon us. Help us to find out if we actually believe that. Or do we just say it out loud for ourselves to make ourselves feel better? Do we actually believe this when things are bad, not just when they are good? So by way of introduction, would you please stand as we read Exodus 5, 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and also I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he confront us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your hard labors. And Pharaoh said, Look, The people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their hard labors? So on that day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the quota of bricks which they were making previously you shall set upon them. You are not to reduce any of it, because they are lazy. Therefore they are crying out, Let us go sacrifice to our God. Let their slavery be hard on the men, and let them work at it so that they will have no regard for false words. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Let's pray together. As we pray, I ask that you pray for me this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to worship you in spirit and truth, and we ask that you illumine our hearts and minds to worship you now as we hear your word. I pray that you will remove any sin in our lives that would hinder this prayer that you will be God over all, and that your will will be done, that your word will go out, and it will accomplish exactly what you have set it for. We ask all this in Christ's holy and powerful name. Amen. You may be seated. So the Israelites are having a problem this morning. Their work is becoming extremely difficult because Pharaoh has decided to remove the straw in which to make bricks, which they were doing before. So for the Israelites, this really is the last straw, all pun intended. And all of this is coming about 
because Moses and Aaron are kind of stirring up some things here in verse 1. Because they go to Pharaoh and say, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. This is the first time that we see the prophetic speech formula. Thus saith the Lord. Lord, all caps, which means Yahweh. Thus says the Lord. This message is not from Moses and Aaron. This is from God himself. Because God had commanded Moses and Aaron in Exodus 3.18 to say these words. And they will listen to your voice, and with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will all say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met us, met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Do you know the, notice the discrepancy there? In 3.18, God commands them to say, we need to make a sacrifice. Well, a problem arises in chapter 5 because it says may, we may celebrate a feast. Now, Moses and Aaron may very well have had a feast in mind, but they didn't say what God told them to say. And that's a problem. Notice also that in 3.18, it says that Moses, Aaron, and the elders, the plurality of elders, is supposed to go before Pharaoh and say, you must sacrifice. Let us go so we can sacrifice to God. But they don't have the elders. In fact, we see no mention here. In Jewish tradition, they have a hard time reconciling this because in chapter 5, we see no mention, and historically, they would have been mentioned had they been there because they would have wanted to emphasize the faithfulness of Moses. But we don't see any mention. So let this be a small lesson just right out of the gate, that when we speak to Pharaoh, when we speak to the world and the gods of this world, that we say what God says, exactly how he says it, and in the way that God commands us. It's God's word, and it's God's way. And of course, Pharaoh isn't having any of this because he responds in verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and also I will not let Israel go. We see the main players here. This is really not a story about Moses or Aaron or the Israelites or the Egyptians. This is really God's story. God's message, God put up against Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is a God of Egypt. In all intents and purposes, he serves as the head of all the gods of Egypt. The false gods of this world versus the true and living God. That's the characters pinned against each other. So Pharaoh's not having this at all. The false god will have nothing to do with the true god. And so Moses and Aaron make a second attempt in verses 3 to 5, and they get it a little more right this time. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he confront us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your hard labors. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their hard labors? So it's the second attempt. In the second attempt, Moses and Aaron do say, so we can go sacrifice to Yahweh. And in many ways, this is a wise approach for all of us, for all the people of God, that when we say what God tells us to, to this world, in the way that he has commanded us, and the world rebuffs and pushes against, Moses and Aaron's approach is really, hey, your problem's not with me. Your problem's with God. This is God's message. Thus says Yahweh. That's a great approach to say, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. This is God's message, God's way, and God's story. And Pharaoh responds in what we might 
kind of find predictable for this particular Pharaoh because he doubles down on what he knows in 6 through 9. So on that day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall set upon them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore, they are crying out. Let us go sacrifice to our God. Now let their slavery be hard on the men and let them work at it so that they will have no regard for false words. Pharaoh obviously denies the second attempt of Moses and Aaron, and he doubles down on what he knows, which is work. He imposes more work upon the Israelites. The previous Pharaoh, his solution, when Israel was getting out of hand, what was it? He would start killing, killing spree for the previous Pharaoh. But this Pharaoh has a different approach because that didn't work. That Pharaoh kills, but still at the end of verse 5, look, the people of the land are now many. It doesn't stop the Israelites from growing beyond the number of the Egyptians. So this Pharaoh has a different tactic. He says, we're going to put these numbers to work. So he enslaves the Israelites. He doesn't kill them. You want to keep multiplying? You want to keep being fruitful? Good. I'm going to put that to work. So that has worked for this Pharaoh, and now he's got another problem arising with Moses and Aaron. And work has worked before, so more work must be the answer now. So I'm going to remove the straw. I'm going to make the work hard on God's people. But notice that when Pharaoh responds, he doesn't even say the name Yahweh. Doesn't use God's name at all. He just says, your God, or the God of the Hebrews. You can just feel the scare quotes in the air. And you can start to see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the disdain and the disgust for the true and living God that this world and the false gods have. In fact, Pharaoh doesn't use Yahweh's name at all until chapter 8. When the plague of the frogs comes, he begs Moses, saying, please pray to Yahweh that this plague would relent. It's too much for us. So he withholds using Yahweh's name at this point, and he doubles down on what he knows. And of course, everything just flows downhill from Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the false god, gives his command, makes the work hard, and all of it starts to come to pass in verses 10 through 14. The taskmasters of the people and their foreman went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it. But no amount of your slave labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were pressing them saying, Complete your work quota, the daily amount just as when there was straw. Moreover, the foreman of the sons of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had sent over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? Notice the picture. God's word, God's way, and the response of the world is to make God's people suffer. Many times when we are walking in line with God's will, the people of God suffer. That's the picture that we have. And that is entirely different from what we hear in the modern church. That it's rainbow and sunshines all the live long day. Only good, happy things happen to us if you follow God. Well, that's not true. That's not the picture that we have. Here the Israelites are under a lot of pain and suffering under this Pharaoh. That's the biblical picture. The world hated him first. They're going to hate you also. That's the picture. That's what you can expect 
being the people of God, saying what God says in God's way, is pain and suffering. And Pharaoh imposes this pain and suffering in a very peculiar way. He removes straw from the Israelites. And he says, go and find your own straw. Ha, ha, ha. Slaves don't get to go where they want to look for other straw. They have no other options. They can't just go to neighboring villages or towns or cities to get the straw to make the brick. I'm sure they would have loved to have done that to avoid the beating. But slaves can't do that. They have to go where they are allowed. And, of course, they go to the field and they use what in verse 12? Stubble for straw. And I didn't know this until this week, but stubble is the leftover bits of straw. So the picture is this. You have your, your straw. You gather your bundle. You have your sickle. You cut it at the bottom. You take the straw away, and what is sticking out of the ground about this high is the stubble of the straw, the leftover bits. So they show up for the straw, and of course, the field is barren. All they have is stubble as far as they can see. Now it gets worse because they can't just come up with a smaller knife, grab the stubble, and cut it because it's too short. It's too close to the ground. You're going to ruin the blade. And even if they could, they wouldn't have wanted to. Because they have to make the same amount of brick as when they had straw. So they need as much material as they can possibly get. So they have to pluck the stubble out of the ground. Strand by strand, blooding their fingers all day under the hot sun. They are pulling each strand of straw. Each little stubble. Just to get as much as they possibly can to make these brick. That's the kind of intense labor that Pharaoh has imposed on God's people. And these words, stubble and straw, they don't hit us quite as hard as it really needs to. There's more intensity here than what we can feel in our modern mindset when we read this passage. Because when I read this, I can't help but think of the Holocaust of the 20th century, imposing pain and suffering upon the Jews for no reason, just because they are God's people. In fact, when Christy and I studied abroad in Austria... We were there for about six months, and one of the required trips that you had to go on was to go to a concentration camp and go on the tour of a concentration camp. So we went to Mauthausen, which was the first to be erected and the last to be abandoned. It wasn't the largest. And of course, we get there, we see all the things you read about, we see all the things you see in the movies, we see all the shoes piled up, the scrapes on the wall of where is God with bloodied hands. We see the burned hair. We see the showers where acid will come out and burn them alive. Terrible things. But the worst thing that we saw was the pointless, fruitless labor before they would kill them. In Austria, the river, the river of salt, the salt's a river, salt is a commodity. So just for grins and giggles, they would have a 100-pound bag of salt given to the Jew and then they would wet the salt with the water. So that way the water would soak up into the salt. So this 100-pound bag now weighs closer to 150, 180. And they would put it on the back of a malnourished you. The pictures you see are real. They would put it on those backs, hundreds, lined up in the camp. And they would walk them to and fro in the camp for no reason. Pointless work. Fruitless work. And so the terrain is not like ours. We have nice flat land. This is mountains, cliffs, hills, valleys, up and down for no point. And when they had their fun, they would march them up to the cliff, and they would line up hundreds 
And the first Jew would come up and he would put his bag of salt down and the second Jew behind him would push him off the cliff. Then it's the second Jew's turn, puts his bag down, and the third Jew pushes him off the cliff. Pointless, fruitless, terrible labor that leads unto death. That's the kind of intensity we need to have when we read this. Because the point of this is to make it as painful as possible. Fruitless labor. And of course, the Israelites are not having fun. They don't want anything to do with this. So their foremen approach Pharaoh, probably because Moses and Aaron are barred at this point. But in verse 15, the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, Why do you deal this way with your slaves? There is no straw given to your slaves. Yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks, and behold, your slaves are being beaten. But is the sin of your own people? But he said, You are lazy, lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. So now go and labor, but straw will not be given to you. Yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. Then the foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, You must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they confronted Moses and Aaron standing there to meet them. And they said to them, May Yahweh look upon you and judge. For you have made us a foul smell in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to what? Kill us. This painful, fruitless labor imposed on them is ultimately leading them to death. And the foremen don't like any of this, so they make an appeal on behalf of the people. But notice where they go first. They go to the false god. They go to Pharaoh with their problems. And of course, as we know, you get nowhere with false gods. It's not going to happen. So they come out. What's their response? Who are they mad at? They're not mad at God. They never mention Yahweh at this point, the true God that can actually do something about this. No, they turn their attention to Moses and Aaron and say, curse be you. May God look on you and judge. You have made us despicable in the sight of Pharaoh. We're suffering unto death because of you. And of course, the mindset is, if God was in this, if God really told you to go talk to Pharaoh and tell him this, we wouldn't be suffering. This can't be God's plan because God's plan would only be what? Rainbows and sunshine. This cannot be from God. This must be your doing, Moses. This must be your doing, Aaron. This doctrine of God not being in control, even in the bad things, happens early. It's an old doctrine that we see all the time in the modern church every week preached in pulpits saying that God will lead you through it, but he didn't lead you to it, I've heard. Well, folks, that's just not true. That's not what the Bible says, is it? Isaiah 45, 7. Turn there with me. Isaiah 45, 7 says the one, capital O, the one forming light and what? Creating darkness. Producing peace and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all of these. God is in control beginning, middle, and end. God led them to this point. And so I ask again, do we really mean that our chief end, whether good, bad, suffering, pain, and death, is to glorify God? Why is he doing this? He's putting his glory on display. 
That's the chief end of man. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be what? The glory. Not this hopeless doctrine presented in modern church today. I've heard it put, if you're going through hell and you're wondering why, the answer is in the question. If you're going through hell, it must be Satan that brought you there. God will bring you through it, but Satan brought you to hell. Can't be God. Well, that's not true. As R.C. rightly says, God's devil, God's leash. God is in control, beginning, middle, and end. And if we proclaim this doctrine to our believers, it removes the hope. Because what it says to the believer and the unbelievers looking is this. God is somehow going to bring you through it, but somehow he couldn't have prevented you from getting there. Why would I have any hope that God could lead me through this terrible thing if he wasn't in control first? If he couldn't have prevented it or didn't want to? If he can't do it, he can't lead me through it. Anybody with half a brain can see that that is not possible. God is in control, beginning, middle, and end, without exception. Now, what you didn't hear me say was God is the author of evil. That's not true. Every historic confession is explicitly clear. God is not the author of evil. But neither is he not sovereign in everything that comes to pass, without exception. And of course, Moses and Aaron, they know exactly who's in charge. They respond this way to themselves. In verses 22 and 23, Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses knows exactly who's in charge because he knows exactly where the command came from. Otherwise, he would have backed out too. If he had any doubt that this command did not come from God, this is, this is exactly where he would want to back out. This is bad. This is the point to turn away. But he doesn't do that. He says, where are you, God? Everybody's wondering where God is. Why do we have this suffering? Pharaoh, who is this God? Foreman, it can't be God that did this. Moses and Aaron, God, where are you? Why haven't you done anything? And God responds in chapter 6, I am Yahweh. Doesn't even address it. 6-2, Moses, I am Yahweh. 6-6, six, six, says to Israel, I am Yahweh. 6-7, says to Israel, I am Yahweh. 6-8, he says to Israel, I am Yahweh. He doesn't even address it. Because he doesn't have to. He's God. And that's how he works, isn't it? God, where are you? Why am I suffering? Who are you, Job? Gird up your loins. Be a man. Where were you when I created everything? It says here, doesn't even address it. Who made man's mouth, he says to Moses. Paul in Romans 9, with Pharaoh as the example, why would we have this vessel of wrath? And he responds... Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Where do you think he got the model from? He got it from God himself. That's how God operates. He, know, he owes no explanation to anyone here because he is God and he is putting his glory on display because this is his story. Notice what God is going to do. In 6.1 he says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, 
Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For by a strong hand I will let him go. And by a strong hand I will drive them out of this land. Doesn't address it. He says, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to drive you out of this land. Strong hand, strong hand. In the Hebrew, two times mentioned is a double emphasis. I'm going to make it happen by compulsion, as some of your translations will say. I'm going to make this happen. Not you. And then he says something to Moses that is watershed moment here in verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said, I am Yahweh, the covenantal name, the ineffable name. This is the first time that God ever reveals his actual name is right here. Doesn't give it to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He gives it to Moses. What's the answer? Where are you, God? He says, I am Yahweh. That's your answer. That's all you need to know. And of course, and when he says to Moses, I am Yahweh, it has implications. What does that mean? What does that mean in light of everything else? In verses 3 and 4, I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as what? God Almighty, El Shaddai, the great God, far off. But my name, Yahweh, was not known to them. He didn't reveal his name to the patriarchs. So what's the implication? That you know how faithful I have been to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses doesn't question that. The Israelites don't question that. They know exactly how faithful God has been to them. And God says, if I was as faithful to them and I was just this far off almighty God, El Shaddai, but now to you, I am Yahweh and I condescend to you in a covenantal way. I give you my name. How much more secure is the promise of deliverance? It's absolutely more sure because he is revealing something. He is doing something new because in verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in slavery and I have remembered my covenant. I have heard, I have remembered, idiomatic language for saying Action is underway. What I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is happening now. It's about to go down in modern vernacular. This is God's way saying that I am Yahweh and I will do these things for my glory. So he says to Moses, I am Yahweh. Then he turns his attention to Israel and he says, I am Yahweh three times, six, six. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their slavery. I also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. God says, I'm going to set you free. How do you know that? I am Yahweh. That's all you need to know. And I'm going to do it with an outstretched arm, mighty acts, the plagues of Egypt that are coming. That's how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to set you free in a way that you never thought possible in a way that you never saw coming, in a way that will give me more glory than had we done it another way. He could have set them free at any point, but God wants them to be set free at this time, in this way, and in this manner for his glory. I will set you free. I am Yahweh. The second time in 6-7, then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians. He's going to make Israel his people. That's covenant language. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. A covenant initiates, initiated by God to the Israelites. 
I'm going to set you free. I am Yahweh. I'm going to make you my people. I am Yahweh. And finally, to bring it all into Israel, and I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. I'm going to give you the promised land, the land of Canaan. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to make you my people, and I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. I am Yahweh. And God is being relational in a way that he has never been before. He reveals his name. They knew me as God Almighty. You get to know me as my people. I am condescending to you at this moment. And I'm doing a mighty work for my glory and your benefit. And I'm going to make this happen. So this is big news for Moses. This is huge news for the Israelites. God has never done this before ever. He says, I am Yahweh. That should mean something to you. And how do they respond in verse 9? They don't get it. The Israelites don't get it. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but what? They did not listen to Moses on account of their weakness of spirit and hard slavery. Of all the moments to not be faithful, this wasn't it. Because they had things that had never been graced to even the patriarchs. Yet they respond, I'm not listening to this. I'm not having this. I don't care. I don't care what God says. Why? At the end of verse 9, it says it's because of what? Their weakness of spirit and hard slavery. The Israelites have not been set free. They don't have Canaan on their mind. They're, they're servants in Egypt. They have no covenant relationship in mind. They're slaves. They have no hope of freedom in their minds. Pharaoh just proved that. He just made it impossible for us to do our current work. There's no hope for freedom here. And so it's because of their slavery, they can't respond appropriately to what God has said. They are not able to do so. And slavery in the Old Testament is just a picture for what? Sin in the New Testament. The true slaveholder of all of man. That's the true. And in John 3.3, we hear that as much. You cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you are what? Born again. Unless you're set free. You can't even see the land of Canaan. It's too far. I can't get up on something to look. I'm tied down. I'm chained down. I am a slave. I am dead. So they're not able to respond to, respond to God appropriately. So God addresses Pharaoh. He says to Moses, I am Yahweh. Israel, I am Yahweh. He says to Pharaoh in verse 10, notice, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Come tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Do you notice that? God does not relate to Pharaoh with his name. Moses, I am Yahweh. Israelites, three times, I am Yahweh. Pharaoh withholds it. I do not know you in this covenantal way, but I've got something for you. I've got a command. Let the sons of Israel go out of his land. I am Yahweh to them, but to you, I'm just going to be your commander, and my will will be done. Not a feast, not a festival, not a sacrifice, a full exodus is underway here. And God says, I'm not going to know you. Judgment's coming for you. Blessing is coming for my people. He withholds his covenant name. And this is all great news. And then Moses kind of responds in a way that we would think might be appropriate in verse 12. 
Moses spoke before Yahweh, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Your translation may say just of, I have poor speech or I don't speak well. But there's more to it than that. Uncircumcised is unworthy. You don't want to be an uncircumcised anything in Jewish culture. You'll be unworthy, useless, not fit for anything. And your lips just represent your speech. It's the first thing that you see. So I am unworthy to do this messaging. I am unworthy to speak these things. I am of uncircumcised lips. It's the same kind of language in Isaiah 6, where he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's the same kind of thing. Moses is saying, I can't do this. I'm not worthy of what you have just done. Moses realizes what has just happened. God revealed his name. He says, I can't speak. I can't do this. What does God say? He speaks. Notice the compare and contrast in 12 and 13. Moses can't speak, but the positive side, it's not his job anyways. It's really Yahweh who's speaking. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Abraham and gave them a command for the sons of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. He says, I'm going to speak. And I'm saying this to you, Moses. I'm saying this to you, Aaron. I'm saying this to you, Israelites. I'm saying this to you, Pharaoh. He addresses every single one and says, I am Yahweh who will do all this, and I will have the last word. So this tension is building. The ebb and flow, the pain of the Israelites are growing. The promise, new information revealed by who God is. And all of a sudden, we come to genealogy. Right smack dab in the middle of our story. In verses 14 through 27, we have an entire genealogy at the most crucial point of this passage. Well, as a literary device, we kind of understand this. This kind of serves as a commercial break. This serves as a to be continued. We, we know this week to week. You watch your favorite show on TV. The tension is building. The plot is thickening. You learn something new about one of the characters you didn't know before. And then all the way right at the end, it says, to be continued. Blackout. That's what the genealogy does here. And there's a lot of good stuff here in verses 14 through 27. There's a lot of great things. In fact, there's an eight-part sermon in the New American Commentary just on this genealogy alone. So I'm going to refer you there. But the main point is, is that Moses and Aaron are the real deal. They go all the way back to Jacob, the, incep the inception of Israel. And they are the Levitical priesthood. That's the main point. But there's seven more if you want to look into it. And so, of course, in your show, what happens? To be continued, black out, what happens right after that? A little sneak preview of what comes next week. A little recap of what has just happened before next time next week and so they sum up what's just happened in this episode and look at the little tidbits that are coming for the next episode keep coming back for more and in verses 28 through 30 that's exactly what we have as a literary device now it happened on the day when Yahweh spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that Yahweh spoke to Moses saying I am Yahweh speak to Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I am speaking to you but Moses said before Yahweh, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? We have all this information. It's just a recap, a summary of what the main thing is. God says, I will speak and I will have the last word. 
Because he emphasizes this four times in these verses. Verse 28, Yahweh spoke. Verse 29, Yahweh spoke. Verse 29, I am Yahweh, speak this. Verse 29, I am speaking to you. I am Yahweh, and I will have the last word. Not Pharaoh, not Moses, not Aaron, not the Egyptians, not the Israelites. This is my story. I am in charge. I am Yahweh, and I will have the last word. These passages here today press upon us, and there's stuff here for everybody. For believers, what is here for you is in 6, 6 through 8. The promises of Israel are yours. And you may be sitting there, well, that doesn't matter. That's Israel. This is really just a, a history lesson of those people and that time. No, that's not for us. That's, that's for them. Au contraire. Galatians 2.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are what? Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Why do we have the two groups into one? Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one man making peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through what? The cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. What is this now one group called? Galatians 6.15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but what? A new creation. What's it called? The new creation. And though those who will walk and step with this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon what? The Israel of God. So 2 Corinthians 1.20 is true. All the promises are yes and amen in Christ. This story is for you, believer. It was for them, absolutely. That's true, but it's not true enough. In 6.6, 6, he says, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I'm going to set you free. I'm going to set you free. I am Yahweh. Did God set the Israelites free? Yes. That's true, but it's not true enough. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore stand firm and do not be subject again to what? The yoke of slavery. That's true, but there's more truth to be had. 6.7, I'm going to make you my people. I am Yahweh. Did God initiate his covenant relationship with Israel on Mount Sinai? You bet. He made them his people. God is good. He is true. But there's more truth to be had in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you, church, the Israel of God, you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but you are now what? Not a people, the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did God make the Israelites his people? Yeah. But what he says here is more true than what we ever thought possible. That's what God does. We wanted to do it a certain way. We want to be freed a certain way on our time scale. But God says, I've got more in store. This is my story. My will be done. In 6.8, he says, I'm going to give you the promised land. I am Yahweh. 
Did God lead the Israelites to the promised land? Yep. Joshua. Absolutely. God is faithful. That is true, but it's not true enough. Because Abraham tells us that we were looking for a city not built by hands. Hebrews 11.10, For he, Abraham, was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Did God give them the promised land? You bet. Did he have something greater in store? You bet. Every song that we sing about heaven, safely on Canaan's shore, every song that we have this has this language of God was faithful to them, and he's going to be faithful to us, the true Israel of God. These promises are yours in Christ alone. It is Christ only in where these promises are truly fulfilled, where they are yes and amen. But if this isn't jiving with you, if this doesn't resonate with you this morning, if you are an unbeliever, then verse 9 is for you. 6, 9 says, so Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen. And they didn't listen because of their hard slavery. If this isn't jiving well with you, if the promises of God fulfilled in Christ don't light your fire, then you might be an unbeliever and you might be a slave. And you don't want to be a slave in Egypt when the judgment comes. If you're tied down and shackled down in Egypt and the plagues find you, the judgment of God finds you, it's too late. Your only hope is to mark 115, repent and believe the gospel. You have to beg God to set me free. He'll make you a people, absolutely. He's going to lead you to Canaan's side, but first things first. You must be born again. You must repent and believe the gospel. You don't want to be in Egypt when the judgment comes. Did that actually happen in Egypt? You bet, 100%. Is there more truth to be had in the second coming? You bet. Notice Revelation. Sounds real familiar, doesn't it? Sounds exactly like this. That's true. But there's more truth to be had, and you don't want to be a slave when you find out that truth. And really, that's the picture. That's the offer, believers and unbelievers. This is God's story versus Pharaoh. God offers rest. He's ultimately leading his people to Canaan, the land of rest. Why? Because he's a God of rest. He created Day one through six, there was evening and morning every day except what day? The seventh day, the day of rest. God is eternally the God of rest, and he is about the business of leading his people into rest. The church affirms this every week. We meet on the first day. Before you work, one through six, then you rest. But God is making all things new. In Christ, yes and amen, the fulfillment of the Sabbath, you enter into Christ and his resurrection on the what? The first day. You enter into rest first and then you go work. That's the order. That's your only hope is to enter into rest. We have this need and desire to work. I am all about bullets, checkpoints, to-do lists, scheduling, things to work at. That's great, but it will never lead you to rest. It will never lead you to God. No, that's the doctrine of hell. That's the doctrine of Satan. That's the doctrine of every false religion you've ever heard. Because what does Pharaoh do? God offers rest. Pharaoh offers work, painful work, fruitless work that bears on you, that will lead you to nowhere, just more enslavement. And those are your options. Enter into rest, to work, 
Or do your best to work to enter into rest and find out how that works. Because it will never work. That's the entire storyline of the Bible is you cannot be good enough. You cannot work hard enough. You must rest and then work. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your only hope is to rest in Christ. Has your faith found that resting place? Because if it has, you need no other argument. You need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enter into that rest or remain a slave in Egypt as the judgment comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you offer rest in Christ. and minds, that your Holy Spirit will convince us that we can never do enough. We don't even meet our own standards. There is no hope for meeting your standard. Only God, only Christ himself can this be fulfilled. And we ask that you free us of our sins, that you break the chains that bind us, that you make us a people of your own possession and lead us safely to Canaan's side. Lord, forgive us where we fail you. Forgive us where we come so proud that we can work our way to you. But we come with nothing in our hand. Only to Christ we cling this morning. It's in his precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. FBCDUMAS at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 935 5604. We'll see you next time.